You're listening to the Plus Music Podcast with Brian and Nick, where we sit down with artists, founders, video game music composers, and discuss early ideas, challenging hurdles, and how the ever-changing music industry will evolve in the digital age. Today we're sitting down with Portuguese-American producer, podcast host, and conductor of the new Deco Ensemble, Giacomo Bairros. Giacomo joins us from Miami, Florida, and talks to us about his days touring the world with the New York Philharmonic, the Chicago Symphony, and the Cincinnati Symphony and Pops, as well as conducting and performing with the Boston Pops, San Francisco and St. Louis Symphonies. And we learn more about the new Deco Ensemble, which is reimagined music by Daft Punk, Aretha Franklin, Queen, Outkast, and beyond. Here's more from Giacomo now. Yeah, thanks, man. Wow, it's very funny to hear your bio read by someone else, but uh, really appreciate that. <laughs> yes, that grand Absolutely. introduction. I, yeah. so Most much. people like to Great take people. our uh, recording of their intro and just play it on their phone whenever they meet new people. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, I that know. comes in handy. <laughs> I love it. I well, love great it. to meet you. Thanks for sitting down with us. Uh, where to start? Yeah. So, uh, I guess my first question for you is: Is how did you even get into the conductor world? Where did it start? I imagine you started off playing an instrument at a young age, but what's the journey to becoming a conductor? Yeah, let me and let Ooh. me frame that a little bit too, like for context, like you know, for for the listeners out there that like that are musicians or aspiring musicians, and you can go. You know, you either want to be a pop star or you want to or you can go all the way to busking and in between there's everything else. And then there's what you what you pursued, too, which is um, it's a it's a different land, you know, because everybody's thinking TikTok and we'll get into that stuff and how you guys use that. But yeah, great question. But I want to love to figure out where how you get to where you are and what took you there. Woo, big question. Uh, I'll do the best Reader's Digest version I can. And, and first, I want to say to you, uh, thank you so much for having me. What you guys are doing is really amazing, pushing things forward and uh, grateful to have a chance to talk with you guys. So uh, this is really wonderful. So I appreciate it. Um, you know, like I'm a, I'm a Generation X at the very end of Generation X. And back in the day when I was in school, in middle school and high school, they actually put money into the music programs that they had back in the public school system. So, you know, immediately when I joined the sixth grade band, um, I had this incredible band director who like threw all these instruments at me. And one of them was the tuba randomly. And because there was no other tuba players in the school, I ended up playing in the jazz band and the orchestra. And well, there was a little orchestra in the middle school band and also in like their top band. So I was like in middle school, like two, three hours a day playing on all these little ensembles. And I just obviously took a, a real knack right away toward music. And she was extremely supportive of me. And I remember the moment I, I, I this is kind of, I'll answer it in two parts. I remember the moment I knew I wanted to be a musician. I was 12 years old. And she took me to go to see uh, the Canadian Brass, which I don't know if you guys know this group or not, but like their heyday was in like the 80s, 70s, 90s. Um, there's this group that like basically were the first genre bending chamber music brass quintet. And they were like amazing, unbelievable. I mean, recordings after recordings, they were like huge, huge, huge. And the tuba player of the band of the group was uh, an MC on stage. He was telling jokes to the audience. He was playing the tuba and all this amazing stuff. And I was just like blown away. I was just like, whoa, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. And I want to be that guy. I want to play the tuba. I want to be professional. And I ran home to my mom. I said, mom, I want to do this. And of course, she was a teacher and super supportive of everything and all my wild ideas. She went out and bought me all these recordings. And uh, she bought like Native Brass recordings, and she found these Boston Pops recordings. 
but she just bought me what she could afford. And it was like four or five little CDs, I remember. And I just remember listening to those things over and over and over and over and over again. So I was just like had in my head the Canadian Brass and the Boston Pops. And I told her I wanted to be a musician. And that was like the first like big start. And then, you know, very fortunate. I definitely pursued it, went off to Juilliard and had a career around the world playing in different orchestras. And my last final position as a tuba player was with the Singapore Symphony. I was principal tuba there. And another wow. young American brass player. Yeah, yeah. I ended up all the way in Singapore. I mean, I lived in Spain. I lived in Germany. I, I played overseas in a bunch of different places, even China. But I had this opportunity to audition for the Singapore Symphony, and I, I won the role. And it was a big international orchestra. It was a really great ensemble. And uh, my best friend today, I met there, uh, another American young brass player, Sam Hyken, who's now also the co-founder and artistic director of New Deco with myself. You know, we just hit it off right away, you know, two Americans living in, in overseas and this, you know, amazing country playing with this world-class orchestra, but also like, you know, we're making money for the first time. We're both young in our twenties, hanging out, going to Thailand, like traveling the world. It was just like this really strong bonding, amazing experience that we both had. And we both were graduates of Juilliard. We both were brass players and dealt sure. with all the pitfalls that came with that. But we also both were well-versed in like lots of music genres, even though we love the orchestra and love playing in the orchestra. We also love hip hop and rap and jazz and all kinds of stuff. So we would nerd out and geek out on music all the time. And, you know, one question we'd always ask ourselves is what's the future of the orchestra going to be? Because, you know, you, you, the, the same old story that's been said over and over again is the orchestra's not relevant anymore. And, you know, orchestras are struggling to find their place in the world. And uh, classical music is a niche within a niche. It's dying, blah, 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 blah. While I don't technically believe that, I do feel like there was that narrative at the time. This is like mid 2000s. Mm -hmm. And so I had this dream one night that I was like, you know, and I had always been really interested in conducting. There was something like really fascinating about that, like non-verbal communication between a, a person at the front of the orchestra at the top and the musicians. Like I'd always just be like, you know, these great conductors would come and conduct the orchestra. I'd work with them at Juilliard or different places and like, you know, big names. And they'd come up on the podium and all of a sudden the orchestra just sat up a little better or played a little better or listened a little better. I, and I was like, what the, you know, what is that? Like, how is that possible? I mean, this is just a human going up and moving their arms around. Like, what is, I just, the unspoken communication and rules and, and, and the vibe between that person on the podium uh, and the musicians of the orchestra just really fascinated me. It was like, almost like telepathy. Like, how is this person mm -hmm. getting the orchestra to do these miraculous things in music and putting all this stuff together in a way that brings 80 people together and synergized. And like, of course the best of the best do it, but like, I just wanted to know why I wanted to like deconstruct that and know why. So I was always really interested in that component, but I had this dream in Singapore that I was conducting the Singapore symphony. And I was like, Whoa, it was like as, as vivid as possibly could be. And I went to my buddy, Sam, and I was like, yo, because we were roommates as well over there. And I was like, man, I just had this dream. I was connected to Singapore Symphony. I think I'd want to try it. And he's like, do it, man. You should do it. And I'll preface this was at the time I was getting kind of bored. I had taken like 20, 30 auditions for orchestras. And, you know, any classic musicians out there listening will, will know how difficult it is to win a job with a, a, an orchestra. It's just really hard. There's a lot of great, uh, talented, up-and-coming musicians and very few positions to get into. And so you're kind of taught in conservatory, at least at the time I was in conservatory, they're changing a little bit now, but you're kind of taught in conservatory, the pinnacle of your artistic existence is getting a job in an orchestra and that's freaking hard to do man it's just like really it's a crapshoot a lot of the times it's like preparing for the olympics it's 
in some ways the most unmusical thing you can do as a classical music artist because it's basically just executing an excerpt of sound a very specific way so the orchestra wants to hire you it's like this whole thing and i never was really good at that i was really good at playing in an orchestra and playing with other musicians because i used my ears and i love to like learn from people but like sitting and executing a audition is just really really difficult anyway i just was getting tired of doing that sort of rat race and i remember i uh took an audition for the pittsburgh symphony it was the last audition i took and um I spent like two or three thousand dollars flying all the way from Singapore to go all the way to Pittsburgh to take this audition with a great orchestra, by the way. Pittsburgh Symphony is incredible. And I got on stage and I played like, I don't know, two minutes of music. And they were like, next. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, I just like I, I'm over this. Like, and I went back to Singapore and I started trying all <sighs> these things. I was running. I know it was ridiculous. And, and look you got to get knocked down hard to know what you want to do. And, you know, it's like any entrepreneur or anybody who's ever had struggles and gone through them and achieved and succeed in their own way. will tell you, like, you got to get knocked down, but like, I mean, come on, man. It's like my whole life surrounded this thing. And like, I played two minutes. And so I just remember leaving Pittsburgh, going back to Singapore, going like, this is not the path I want to go forward. I was approaching 30 and I had enough time behind me to say, you know what, that's not bringing me true authentic happiness. I don't know what is, but this, right here is not and as much as i love playing in an orchestra like as a tour player it just was not fulfilling me in all the ways that i felt like i had within me and i just felt like there was a talent mm -hmm. being untapped so i ran the chamber music series it went really well i started the youth orchestra doing all this stuff and i went to the management and said hey i'd like to conduct a concert the singapore symphony and they kind of laughed at me and i had this idea to do like this latin pops program that i thought would be really fun using a miami uh collaborating with a miami musician who was popular back in the day and he had a little bit of a following in singapore and there were some charts already written and they're like okay giacomo you go out and raise uh fifty thousand dollars and uh, we'll put on your concert meanwhile they're like he's never gonna do that you know that's what the management said to me well lo and behold i went out to the community and shook the trees and came back like two weeks later with 50 grand they're like okay well you did what we said so we're gonna give you this concert ended up doing the amazing concert in singapore yeah it was like a huge just thrill and ended up doing the concert in Singapore, had no idea what I was doing, never took a conducting lesson in my life. I looked like a wild hyena losing his mind up on the podium. I mean, there's videos of me conducting that. It's just out of control. I like look at it and go, ah, but it was a start and it was, you know, perseverance. And it took a year to put that whole concert together. We did three sold out nights and people were super happy. The musicians, which I was really happy about what came up to me you know these are my colleagues in the orchestra like you actually have something going on there's maybe something you could do blah blah blah, blah. and the manager of the singapore symphony is like all right you 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 taught you showed us and good job like now you need to learn how to conduct because you really don't know what you're doing but you did a good job so they sent me to a <laughs> uh, <laughs> they sent me to a, a master class in the czech republic they actually paid for it and they were the idea was that i would go and learn how to conduct like actually properly and then maybe come back and start doing some pops concerts throughout the year and, and put it on so I went to this festival um, and I was just very blessed and fortunate. The right teachers were there, people with like, you know, connections and they saw me work and they sent my materials to this really famous teacher in America. His name was Gustav Meyer. He's no longer with us. He was my big mentor. And uh, he saw my work and said, you know, you've got some talent. And if you come with study with me at Peabody Institute in Baltimore, I think you'll have a career as a conductor. And I was just like, really? I didn't even set out to do this. I was just like trying to get better so I can go back to Singapore and like do my thing. And, you know, my mom being super supportive my entire life was like, you have to go do what the old man said. If he said, go study with him, go study with him. You know, you only get a few of these moments in your life. And you guys know, like you, when you get to a place and you have an opportunity, you know what it's like. And it's like, you want to take advantage of it. And I just did it. And, you know, I went off to school and, and it's funny. I took like 
my I took probably like 25 to 32 auditions, maybe got advanced to like one or maybe five of them, and one, maybe a couple jobs in conducting. As soon as I started studying and I took a couple auditions after a few years, like the first four auditions, I either was runner up or I won. So obviously I figured nice. like I knew what I, I, I found the right thing. And then Sam and I reconnected in Miami because he moved back from Singapore to join the New World Symphony in Miami. And I'm from here. And we just kept talking about these ideas and talking about ideas. And then New Deco started to formulate from there. But that's that's the kind of long story that got me yeah. just conducting. Well, it's great. Good story. I I got a question for you. Back to your earlier, um, the, the question you were looking for, which is, what are they doing? What's the, what, how do, how does the, the conductor um, sort of come into a room and get the best out of people? Because like, well, all you're really saying there, and this happens in every discipline, which is, this is management, right? It's like, you're really getting, you're leading your leader and you're leading a group of people to be the best at what they do um for a combined sort of result in this case you know great music that people can listen to and get enjoyment from but that's leadership so like how does the non-verbal like what goes behind the scenes to make sure that the when the the conductor shows up to the podium it's all done i'm assuming that there's rehearsals and that conductors like rewritten the music to be what that person you know so Walk us through how a conductor will take a piece and either write it themselves or take something and adapt it to their, um, you know, to their taste, what they want to present. How's that work? Yeah. Oof. It's a lot there. Um, I want to be mindful because I can go on a deep rabbit hole about all of we got, it because we got, we got time. <laughs> well, the thing is, is, you know, again, just very fascinating, this whole like, nonverbal communication that's something that really struck me about a conductor in an orchestra and how he he or she can get the best out of those musicians and you're right you know you are a leader and you have to inspire people to do their best you can't tell someone to do their best you have to inspire them to do the best you have to motivate them and i think any great leader will will allow the musician to be themselves while corralling them into the vision he or she has I think that's its own skill set that just takes, you know, the whole 10,000 hour thing to like figure out. And obviously you have to be open to feedback. And, and I think in the old day, like it was pretty common for like, if you listen to those old Toscanini, you know, rehearsal recordings where he's screaming at people and terrifying them, like that was a way to get it done back in the day. But, you know, it, it's just not the way to get it done in 2022. And you don't really hear about those kinds of stories of those kinds of conductors anymore. They're, they're kind of a, a dying breed. Um, however, uh, there is something deep within a conductor, especially the best of the best. And I was very lucky to have one of my mentors be Kurt Mazur, the late Kurt Mazur, who was the former uh, music director of the Gavant House Orchestra in Leipzig and the New York Philharmonic um, in the 90s and early 2000s. He's like a legend, legendary. And I mean, but big German, like huge guy, scary, intimidating, looked like, like, looked like he was going to like kill you. I mean, he was like a lion. This guy was like terrifying. He, people were terrified of him. As I got to know him as a student, I thought he was like the biggest teddy bear in the world. But when he got on the podium, he demanded. He demanded the best out of everybody. He was relentless. He would not let three notes go by unless it was exactly the way he wanted it to be. That's a really difficult argument to sell to a musician or an orchestra 
unless you know the music better than anybody else on that stage. And that's the kind of role the conductor is to have every, it's like, how can I equate this? Like, you, you know, you like, like someone who makes it, who builds a computer, right? Like from scratch, let's talk about like maybe Wozniak and Jobs in the early days, you know, building this computer from scratch. They know every part that goes into it. They know every piece, they know every last little thing. But then a programmer comes and sits on that computer and types and does the thing. That programmer doesn't know what's inside the, 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 the computer. So that's, imagine that's the musical score, like a Beethoven score, a Mozart score, a Brahms score. And like that computer that was built by this engineer, it, the composer, that's their score. It's like the programmer is going to know it. However, the program is going to tell the computer what to do. Right. So like I'm the programmer or I'm like the architect. So like I have a music, a piece of music that a composer wrote. It's my job to analyze both the music, its theoretical function, its, you know, emotional function, timing, dynamics, colors, you know, all of it and have that really ready to go and think about all of that and know it and have it in my heart and soul, be able to read the score upside down, backward, forward, and know every last note, every last articulation, every last dynamic. And when I know that, it gets back to this unwritten rule where you can project that to the musicians. And if you inspire them, luckily, have the opportunity to inspire them, you can create some really magic between the composer that's dead, <laughs> the audiences in the audience, or the, yeah, the patrons in the audience, the musicians on stage, yourself. It's like this synergistic thing. Um, I got I a question. Compose. I got a question. Related what a great feeling. That. I got a question related to that. So I, I'm just thinking to myself as I'm, I'm hearing you talk, like, uh, you know, when you're thinking about organizations, you, you want, sometimes you want people that, that, that shine and can go do their own interpretations of things but in a symphony it sounds like from hearing you right that you're interpreting and then your job is to is to you know get the players to play it at how you interpreted it right yes so would you say that when you're choosing musicians do you tend to choose musicians that are like I can follow something to the T, but I'm not necessarily all that creative or I'm really fucking creative, special musician, but I can't follow the rules. Usually those musicians don't end up in orchestras long-term. The, the second one, right? Yeah. Yeah. If they're really talented and they're really good and they're really dedicated to the craft, they either become soloists or chamber musicians or conductors themselves, or, you know, uh, there's something unfortunately sometimes uncreative i mean you can make something creative in your own way but if you're like the sixth violin of the second violins it's hard to put your personal stamp on a big symphony because you're part of a bigger section of violins that have to have a more homogenous intonation articulation way they hold the bow and stroke the bow to to get a specific sound that's the orchestra sound or what the conductor wants. If you're like a principal clarinet where it's like a one kind of instrument on a part or a trombone or a principal trumpet, you do have a little more flexibility in terms of what you want to accomplish and maybe you have a solo. But I think a lot of musicians sometimes, even though they've been striving their whole life to be in the orchestra, which is part of why I left, was like, it actually can sometimes be a, a, a very uncreative thing for them. And it can get like kind of doldrum and you just feel like you're a cog in the wheel and 
and it can be kind of rough. And I think a lot of classical musicians, they're super smart and crafty and talented and hardworking people. And then they bust their ass their whole life to get to the job. And then the job is sometimes not very creative. So they try to find mm-hmm. things on the side and do other things like teach or do chamber music, stuff like that. Yeah, that's Personally, yeah, personally, you want someone who is just really dedicated to the craft and open-minded, especially in the 21st century. I think right now, one of the big tenets of of the core values of who we are is like diversity, you know, like you need to be able to go into a software uh, program and maybe write some music or you, you need to be able to record yourself and put yourself out there. You need to be able to communicate with non typical classical instruments you know wedding gigs sometimes you play with the rhythm section or you'll get a call to play in an orchestra you get a call to play in the opera that's a different vibe um i think one of the beautiful things about music is that's diversity and i think new deco wants to celebrate that but i think the classical music world definitely gets kind of put into a funnel and and you have to fit the certain mold and that actually makes it harder for you to break out of the mold and that's the whole thing about new deco is like we want to celebrate that classical integrity, the quality that comes with a classically trained musician, but also respect that a jazz musician has their own. You know, they they may not sit and practice one note over and over again trying to get it the exact same, but they have a different kind of theoretical mechanism that gives them inspiration. And when you combine those things, hopefully you get something that's greater than the sum of its parts. And I think that's why we've been pretty lucky and successful in New Deco is we've been working very hard over the years to seamlessly connect the instruments of the 21st century with the instruments of the acoustic symphonic nature of the old orchestral world. Um, and how many that's people are in, trick. Yeah. So like I was going to ask you, you started to go naturally towards it anyways, just to talk more about New Deco, but how many, how many folks are like in New Deco? All the ensemble. The What's, is there a core group? And then, do you yeah, people depending on what you need. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah, kind of all of the above. We, you know, and our biggest version where we play at our uh, our main sort of hall where we have a great partnership with the Adrian Arch Center for Performing Arts. It's a very big performing arts center. Um, our biggest version of ourselves is somewhere in the low 30s, mid 30s range, 35, 36, wow. you know, Amazing. people. It's, we're still a chamber orchestra. Yeah um the smallest version of us ourselves we've actually been doing these candlelight concerts and we have a group called new deco nucleus that's about 16 17 and that's about as small as we can get to still create the sound and the genre bending nature of who we are now there are new pieces of music that are genre bending that use smaller instrumentation we do a lot of chamber music works on our concerts we find that to be a really interesting and fun way to get a little more intimate experience out of the overall performance and the audience members really appreciate and love that aspect of what we do. However, you know, we can be flexible and kind of balloon up a little bit and, and get down. In fact, we made a recording last week to the uh, soundtrack to a movie that Kishibashi, uh, independent music artist, I don't know if you know him, that's coming out yeah. and we just did strings. So it was just strings, you know, and, and that's kind of rare, but that's the kind of flexibility we want to have, you know, but when we go on stage and we're putting on a self-produced concert, we're trying to use everybody. We use a rhythm section. Our rhythm section has been together for years now. So they know how to play not only together really well, but also with the orchestra, which takes its own thing because strings react differently than brass than woodwinds, you know, the rhythm sections in a groove, you know, and I always like to, yeah, we don't have a tuba because uh, I know. I got a question for you there, Giacomo. Um, And this is a kind of personal experience. I've worked with a conductor one time, a guy named David Campbell. Uh, He came in, we did uh, 
24 piece recording with the LA Philharmonic at the Capitol Records studio, that basement down there. It was the most intense experience I've ever been a part of because the session started at noon. All the players are there at 11. We're there at like 10, 1150, 11.55, 11.58, the conductor walked in. Just Ooh. walked right up to the podium, does his thing. Everybody starts. They do a pass of the first song. It sounded spot on and amazing to me. But David Campbell stopped, yelled out one girl's name, Julia. She got up and left. Did it about two more times until the 24-piece orchestra turned out to be 21 pieces. And then it went. So on the spot, three people were out. And But he's the nicest man in the world. Super professional. It sounded great, but do you act that do you have you pulled the cord on somebody <laughs> during a gig like that ever before? I have not, but I've been fortunate. Like, I mean, that's that's kind of a you know, LA is its own thing. The recording engineer, the recording session work in LA is its own thing. And and those there's a lot of pressure on those freelancers out there because like you can fall in and out of favor with contractors really fast. I mean, I, I've done a lot of stuff in LA. I actually recently just made an album with a friend of mine, Joaquin Horsley, that combines classical music with like Cuban dance forms and Yoruba dance forms and all kinds of really cool shit. Uh, but like, you know, the musicians that are being called to come into those recording sessions over and over again are the best of the best of the best, some of the best. And LA is just like, just like, the, it's like the pinnacle of the best studio work there is. And people know that you got to be ready to go and get stuff done. They're not getting the music before they're showing up and seeing it and they need to be able to sight read really well and be able to do it. So I've never kicked anybody out. That's kind of bold, but you know, Hey, if you're in a work for higher state and someone's not cutting it, I can see how it happens in the orchestral world where people are under contracts and jobs. It's not so easy. You can't really do that anymore mm -hmm. um but yeah man that's that's a pretty intense thing and, and yeah you got to deliver you got to deliver and in la there's no room for error you mess up once or twice you're done they don't call you back anymore so it's like yeah. it's, it's it's a pretty high that high reflects you put there. your entire life getting good you could have had a couple bad days and you're out i uh okay yeah. i have a question about the business like how okay so we live in a world where if you want to be a musician, you kind of have to go to social media and build build your fan base there and and get the word out in, in all these new modern ways. Um, do you guys play in that world? Do you need to? Is 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 the world that you guys get your work from and 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 the word of mouth is that coming from different places or are you guys working in that spot too? Do you guys are you trying to get people to do memes on TikTok too, or like what, what yeah. your life? Like? Yeah. I think the old adage is like your fans are your biggest marketers. Right. And I think uh, when we first started out, um, it was just kind of like a shock to the community here. They're like, what the, what is this? Like, you know, people were coming because we were, we had LCD sound system in the marketing or, or Daft Punk. And we were like, what? An orchestra doing Daft Punk? Are you kidding me? And this is, you know, we're talking six, seven years ago. And people were like, okay. And then they would come and then they would be captivated by the entire experience. Not just, they would come maybe to see, like, for example, my girlfriend now, she came because her girlfriend brought her to see Kishibashi. She didn't know it was like a new deco show. She just knew that <laughs> Kishibashi was with an orchestra and her friend was a huge fan and she brought my girlfriend to it. And this is, you know, four or five years ago now. 
but Kishibashi was one component on a larger concert that had all this new music. And we did a musical suite by, I think that was Kraftwerk at that time. And then Kishibashi came out and slayed it. And then we did more music. And like, I think what really excited people is, is they, they found some sort of access point with us in some direction. So like people who love orchestras were coming to hear a new music chamber ensemble. Okay. You know, they were already fans of an orchestra. People who never heard an orchestra were coming to hear an orchestra do Daft Punk or Kishibashi or the police. And they were like, blown away by the new music that was on there like by living composers they didn't know that there was these young composers out there that are really really relevant and hip and cool and people who would maybe come see a living composer would be blown away by the guest artist that was coming from the indie world that they didn't expect so we inadvertently and it was kind of an accident we fell into this like formula that provided an access point for all these different types of music lovers and then we became the sort of gravitational pull to all of them and we all met in the middle which is then like this concert experience that was very visceral very palpable uh, you know had this specific type of energy I mean we were born in this little black box theater called the light box here in Wynwood we don't play there anymore because we just kind of outgrew it but like you know there would be moments where I'm conducting and I my head would whip around and I would see the sweat fall onto the like you know people in the very first row of the audience there was something really powerful being about <laughs> that close to the orchestra and you know people to this day cool. say oh man i'm so glad i saw you at the light box because you know it was so intimate and that's the thing is we want to bring that intimacy to the orchestral experience and in a chamber orchestra you can do that a little easier however you know when you're providing such a sort of plethora of relevant music for each category there's something for everybody and then eventually people just knew that they were going to get something cool and special and different unique and stop worrying about what it is exactly we were playing and just came to see new deco do its thing um and then that kind of steamrolled into like okay then people were like when are you going to put an album out and we got our first album out and then when are you going to put more videos out and then we started putting videos out and like you know especially during covid when the lockdown happened you know we really started pumping a lot of energy into the video component and the returns were incredible i mean it's funny you say daft punk our daft punk video is probably in the next month or two are going to pass a million views and that's not too bad for a classical symphony orchestra you know Heck i mean yeah, a lot of orchestras awesome. yeah i mean it's not you know it's funny some like 15 year old can go up and do a dance and get like 50 million views but you know whatever you know like we're <laughs> we're, we're a niche within a niche hard-earned, and man. I, it's hard-earned work they're doing i yeah. know right right <laughs> and um it's funny you mentioned tiktok we're we're, we're we we don't have like an actual tiktok channel per se but what we have learned is a lot of people take our music from spotify and whatever and add it to their videos and like if you like hashtag daft punk new deco ensemble like there's tons of tiktok videos where people are using the music that we've put out there so i think over time that started to snowball into this thing where like it kind of aggregated itself you know like you have a, a concert and then we ended up like really putting a lot of time energy and focus into having it have a long tail like releasing it and co-releasing it with a partner like for example we had an album with Larkin Poe Larkin Poe's this amazing rock duo and they have a fervent yeah. fan base that's super engaged and we made this beautiful album with them and like we did all these interviews and we did all these like postings and, and we made vinyl and it just like really took off and really just ended up being this beautiful project that just kept going and going and going and it was based off of like one rehearsal and a concert we had with them that moment is gone. Like I could barely remember like the specific moments of the concert because when I'm conducting and just producing, I don't live in the moment. I'm just conducting and producing. And that, I, I don't actually get to sit and enjoy the concert, but like it had such a long tail. I mean, we're still having interviews and dealing with it from a year and a half ago. And, and, and that's, that's to us is where we want to be is like, we want to serve our community and connect our community and rich people and give them something special and magical. 
but then we hope that like we can get some content afterward that we can share with the rest of the world and build the fan base around the world and that's kind of the, like the new sort of vibe we've been going into since COVID for sure and we're noticing that if we strategically market things and put some money behind things in certain ways it really can have like a big effect and, uh, we're starting to see that now yeah that's super cool is there anything um you know so you've been a fan of music for for all this time from just popular music to what you're doing all the way to all kinds of styles is there any like what's the what's like the most interesting add to the music world like from a technology point of view or from a social point of view that you've seen that you really that really kind of was like wow that's a total game changer well i think i mean it's kind of an old platform now but i think youtube has been incredible um there's nothing that's going to compare to a live experience however if you can take out the notion that you're trying to recreate a live experience online and create a very specific video presentation of what it is, what you do. Um, it's different. It's not the kind of same, but you can provide something that's really meaningful for people and people can get really into it. Um, I would say that's like a big uh, factor in, in like, you know, just getting the word out about orchestras and what they can do. You know, to me, the orchestra is the ultimate vehicle for artistic expression. There's no walls, ceilings, boundaries, you know, every genre is up for grabs. You know, if you have the classical sort of base and theory and knowledge at the root of what you do, you can basically stack anything on top of that, no matter what the style is. It all comes from like that baroque classical era I mean, you think about waltzes those are in three and that comes from the classical era you think about you know a, a rock beat it's one two three four that's uh, Ina Klein and Ock music Mozart dun, 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 da, 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 dun. this was all Ugh. dance music back in the day you know like chamber music was dance music it's like instead of hiring a trio here in Miami to come and, and, and be the background music at your wedding they were hiring classical instruments you know so it all came from somewhere. And, and to me, a lot of, you know, of course, jazz and, and American music and Appalachian music, all that stuff was like the root of pop music. However, the structure and the form and all that still comes from that theoretical base that was born in the classical music era. So, you know, in ways of capitalizing on that, I think if Mozart were alive today, he would be really excited that you can mix a Moog or a Rhodes or a synthesizer or a drum set or electric bass with a guitar. I think he would go crazy writing music. In fact, I do think Mozart is alive today and his name is Jacob Collier, but that's a whole different conversation. Um, <laughs> but like, I do feel that, you know, YouTube has been a big proponent, obviously, you know, digital streaming platforms has really helped. Uh, social media is a big thing. I just think people in the age of social media and the age of the internet, like are craving more and more and more and more like real interactions, real intimacy. And if you can create that at the like highest level of quality, people will pretty much take in anything that you give them as long as it's like with passion and authenticity and you love it, you stand behind it and it's the highest level of quality. People are going to like really, I think, buy into it. So um, I would say those have been two huge platforms that I've kind of changed in the game in the classical music world. And I think also just dynamic concert presentations, you know, like we add lights, we add video BTS montages in concerts. We talk to the audience, we engage with them. You know, a lot of the problem with the classical music world in general is there's this invisible curtain, this glass wall between the audience and the stage. And, you know, it served a certain function. In the early part of the 20th century, you know, America was building all these huge, grand concert halls that could fit 2,000 people, 2,200 people. 
now they can't fill them. You know, like classical music isn't part of the popular vernacular as it was in the 20s, 30s, 40s, when you had the NBC symphony and, you know, people would turn on the radio with the three stations and NBC on Sundays was playing the Toscanini symphony. Like, and, you know, that's just what people did. They would sit and listen to that. Now it's like people do a billion different things. But I think being able to capitalize on technology and and using that as a platform to get your art, artistry across in the most intimate way possible has been a huge boon, not just for us, but just for the classical music world and all the music in general. You know, I mean, it's just like the old way was going and scanning through the record shop, right? You look for the vinyls and what's next, what's next, what's next. Now, like you just press two buttons, you can see something. And if you like it, you can dive into more of it. So what about, um, um, but, what about video games and like multimedia stuff, you know, because that interaction uh, you know, a lot of people spend time watching playing video games, right? And yeah, and the music is important in those games too. And and a lot of the those are, you know, full on orchestra, like you know, or oh, yeah. like really interesting, um, you know, dynamic music that gets kind of created in the game based off of some foundations. Uh, have you guys looked into that world, or has that world reached well, out to you? Well, you know, that's a pretty Yes. Okay. So the video game world, I actually have some composer friends who are really involved in that. Um, it's very lucrative. Um, the, the, you know, there's a lot of different things going on in that space, 100%. Um, again, a lot of those move, those soundtracks of video games are still coming out of LA and musicians and session work there. The composers themselves, it's kind of like a, a proving ground. It's like the minor leagues versus the big leagues. You know, video game world, a lot of composers get their start there and then hopefully move to the movie world just because ultimately that's where the bigger paychecks come at least right now but then there's also just a lot of movie game uh, uh video game composers that are making great livings doing what they do and writing amazing epic music i have a friend his name is wataru hokoyama he's this japanese guy we actually were high school roommates at interlock in this music school he's in the video game world in la and movie world and he's kind of earned his stripes writing like award-winning video game compositions and now he's like the number two assistant for like big composers doing movies like thor and marvel movies and things you know because it's it just kind of graduated up to that i mean it's like anything we do right you just pour the time to the craft and dedicate and go and go 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 you're gonna eventually cream flows to the top and if you don't give up you're probably gonna keep going you know and and it just depends on how much you put behind it you 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 know you just you're only going to get what you put into it and uh what it takes to to make it, you have to give what it takes. And if you don't give what it takes, you're not going to get it, you know? And I think uh, the, the video game industry is really fascinating to me. Um, we would love to do something like that, but like, it doesn't make sometimes, it's hard for like the Sonys and the big companies to leave LA because they have contracts and union rules and, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, we are doing a lot more recordings and session work down here too, because this is huge influence of tech people coming into Miami now with, uh, you know, you know, the whole crypto scene here is out of control. So there's a yeah. lot of people moving in the town. And so there's a voracious appetite for entertainment and music and high level quality stuff that I think we're, we're poised to like really, um, do well here because of just the nature of Miami being outdoors and during COVID, like half of New York moved to Miami during COVID. It's just insane. And, you know, you see the influx <laughs> of like people from California to, to Texas and Austin. It's like the same kind of thing. You know, it's like people are looking for a better value, better quality of life. And I think this whole pandemic just showed everyone like, 
I don't have to, you know, that's why everyone's quitting their jobs. It's like, we don't have to like do this stupid rat race anymore. We can just go out and live our lives and be happy, you know? And, and yeah. I think people are moving here because of that. So no, it's a great question. I, um, we want to get into it more for sure. Awesome. Well, as we wrap up here, what's next for you guys and, and what can we, uh, what can we play the, the audience out with one of your tunes? Ooh, well, we, um, uh have a few more concerts left for this season. Our next concert is going to feature a guest artist named Madison Cunningham. She's an up and coming singer songwriter. She's amazing. And then our last performance of the season in Miami uh, is going to feature a commissioned work that we commissioned uh, the legendary pianist, jazz pianist, Robert Glasper for us. So he's writing a new piece of music that we're going to perform. Um, we're also doing like music of James Brown on that concert. So that's kind of our live shows. Uh, in the meantime, we continue to release a lot of digital content. We just released actually a video yesterday in honor of the Super Bowl halftime show that's coming up of Dr. Dre. So you can find yes. that on our YouTube channel. Yeah. So you know, immediately just, yeah, check out our YouTube channel that has a pretty diverse background of what we do. Super proud of all the albums we released. We've got seven full length albums out. You know, we have one with Aaron Parks is a jazz album. We have one with Luke James. It's an R&B album. We have the Larkin Poe album. But I think if you want to give something to the listeners to listen to us on the way out the door, I think it's on our first album. It's 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 kind of our party piece. A lot of people love us. A lot of people found us through it. Uh, we have a region reimagining of the music of Daft Punk with the orchestra. Um, mm -hmm. That's uh, it's called Humans versus Robots. We have a full length video of the suite of that on YouTube and or on Spotify. We have it broken down into different segments. You can maybe play them uh, get lucky to the end. That's a fun, that's a fun one or more, or, or the Giorgio Morador to the end from Daft Punk. Nice. That'll uh -huh. give everyone a good sense of who we are. Sweet. Absolutely. I can't wait myself. Yeah. This has been awesome. John Camille. really great stuff. I've always been fascinated by the conductor and now I'm talking to one face to face. So appreciate your time. <laughs> Love to do no it problem, again. Guys. Circle yeah, back anytime. and uh, definitely look you up when I'm in Miami. Please, if you guys ever come down here, let me know. We'd love to hang, have you at a concert. And, you know, as a fellow podcaster, I know how hard these things are to do. Kudos to you. It's very difficult, especially the editing. It takes forever. Uh, but respect <laughs> and for what you guys got going on and just keep it going. Really appreciate it. Oh, man. Yeah. Good talk. Likewise. Thanks, guys. All right, guys. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Giacomo. Cheers.